chapter 16. I appreciate the Lord this morning and helping us. I, I, uh, I know that our men uh, yesterday went to the prison here at Perry Correctional uh, with a team called In the Lines Ministry, a basketball team that goes to prisons all over the country. And uh, they, they form a team, play uh, basketball against these guys inside the prison. And uh, our men went along with them to help in the preaching and the counseling and they saw eight men come to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Let's give that a hand, uh, the Lord a hand for that, those that came to Christ. What a blessing that is. And so, uh, boy, I'm thankful we had a, a part in that. Last time I preached, which was not, of course, Sunday, we started our revival Sunday, and, and uh, Brother Prater did a wonderful job. But the Sunday before that, I preached out of John 15 on suffering. Jesus had told his disciples that they would suffer for being a follower of Christ. The world would hate Jesus' followers. Uh, if He said, if, if they hate me, they're surely going to hate you. And He said in verse number uh, 26 of John 15, He says, But when the Comforter is come, when I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of me. Then he goes on in verse 27, it says, And ye shall all bear witness. That word witness is the same word we get martyr. So he said, you're going to be witnesses. They're publicly going to see you martyred because you are a follower of Christ. He says this, because you have been with me from the beginning. So they're going to associate you with a Jesus follower. Now, we sometimes in our minds, when we think about a martyr, we think about someone who uh, was just pulled out and, and, uh, of the street and, and beaten publicly or drugged through the street or beheaded or, or burned at the stake. And yes, all of that is true, but you understand there was a lot of things that, that preceded that. They were lied about. Matter of fact, they would go to the marketplace and many of them were not able to purchase like a common man because if uh, that market sold them the goods, then they too would be in trouble. And so these people were lied about, they were cheated on, they were, they were uh, uh, laughed at and scoffed. And then, of course, they were martyred because of their following Jesus. And those even after the resurrection who were martyred because of the faith. They were, they were witnesses and associated as Jesus' followers. Well, then we get to John 16, and Jesus continues this last message. This is right before the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus continues this message to his disciples, and he says, Listen, fellas, let me give you a word of warning. Let me give you a warning. He said, These things have I spoken to you, verse 1, that ye should not be offended. I'm not trying to put fear in you. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to make you upset. Verse 2, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Now think about this. They shall put you out of the synagogues, the place of worship. They're not going to let you be in that place because you are associated with me. Now think about that. That's like telling people that, that you can't come in here and worship. You're not allowed to come in here and worship. You're too fanatical for Jesus. So we've kicked you out of the place of worship. They are not allowed in the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whatsoever that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. So the people that put you to death are actually going to think they're doing God a favor. They're actually doing God's work. By the way, that, that attitude is still alive today. There's people in other religions, other cults that think they're doing God's work by beheading people and by killing people and by persecuting people. They're doing the work of God. How sad. 
Look at verse 3. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father. So Jesus says they don't know the Father, but they think they do. They're doing these things out of ignorance. Nor me. They don't know me. Verse 4, but these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I have told you them of them. And these things have I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. I didn't tell you this in the beginning because I am with you. I was with you for three years and I didn't want to put fear in your hearts in the very beginning. He said, but I'm telling you now because I'm about to leave. He says in verse 5, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whether goest thou. Where, where are you going, Lord? So, fellas, I'm about to leave. Literally, just a few minutes, I'm headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm going to be there. And, of course, after that, you know, they take Jesus and they, they start the process of, 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 of turning him in and, and the prosecuting process and the humiliating process and the, and the uh, uh, buffeting him and beating him and plucking out his beard. And they do all that. This is just a few hours away. And he says, I'm about to leave. None of you have asked me where I'm going because I've said in verse 6, these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Could you imagine what the emotions of the disciples are right now? Jesus, their master, their teacher, their rabbi is leaving them. He's telling them that they're going to be kicked out of synagogues. He's going to tell them that they're going to be witnesses, literally martyrs. He said, they're going to identify you with me. And he says, fellas, I'm not telling you this to upset you. I'm telling you this because I have to leave. Here's what he says, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now, why would Jesus say, I'm telling you the truth? He is the truth. He's done stated that in John 14. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. Why would Jesus remind them that he's telling them the truth? He always does. He's telling them this because it's the opposite of what you think he would be saying. Like he's actually saying, fellas, don't sorrow because you're going to die. Don't sorrow because they're going to kick you out of things. Actually, I want you to understand this is for your good. I tell you the truth. He says... For if I go not away, in verse 7, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. So he said, it's, it's, it's for your benefit that the Comforter comes. And if I don't leave, the Comforter will not come. Look at verse 8. And when he has come, being the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin. That word reprove means the word convict. Or convince. So he will reprove the world of sin. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I want to preach to you this morning briefly on this. What is conviction? That word reprove, I'm very interested in. Jesus is saying, fellas, I'm leaving. And because I'm leaving, I'm sending a comforter. I have to leave. And because I'm leaving, I'm sending you a comforter. But he is coming for several reasons. He's coming, number one, to convict sin. He's coming to show you righteousness. And he's coming to judge because the prince of this world is 
judged. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach for a few minutes this morning on what is conviction. Lord, I pray that you'll help us this morning to realize that we all need convicting. Lord, we understand, we need to understand what conviction truly is and what it means. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus tells his disciples in verse number in verse number seven, verse number eight rather, he uses the word reprove. In your King James translation, it means to convict or to convince a person to bring conviction of sin to a sinful man. We see that term, you've heard that term mentioned before, uh, being under conviction. You've heard me maybe say it before. What does it mean to be under conviction? Did you know that a lost man will never be saved until he's brought under conviction? You have to be under conviction. You have to understand your sinfulness. You have to understand that you're in need of a Savior. That is why we say you can't get a man saved until he realizes he's lost. That's true. So if he never sees his need of salvation, he will never want to be saved. So what does it mean to be under conviction? In the book, The Shadow of the Broad Brim, the life story of a great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Spurgeon, and we know him as the Prince of Preachers. Spurgeon grew up in a Puritan background. His father was a Puritan. His, his grandfather was a Puritan. And so Spurgeon was reading Pilgrim's Progress at six years old. I mean, he was a mastermind, but he was raised in, in, in a very godly environment. But he, he was such a God's man. Uh, but at the age of 16, he fell under conviction in his own need uh, for a Savior. And he, he called it a burdened soul. He said, I realized at the age of 16 that I had never been truly converted. He said, so I decided that I was going to go down to the big church, the big large church in town, and I was going to go visit them and, and uh, hear that preacher preach, and I was going to maybe, maybe find out what conviction was. So he took off. He said it was a snowy day. It was a bad winter storm. He said, literally, I got away uh, to go, and he said, I, I couldn't make it to that big church, so I stopped by this tiny little country church. He said, I walked in and there was just a handful of people there. The weather was so bad that the pastor of the church could not even make it. So a layman got up and this layman was going to preach in the pastor's place. And he seen Spurgeon, a 16-year-old young man sitting in the very back of the auditorium. And he looked at Spurgeon and he said, young man, you are troubled in your spirit. Look to Jesus. That's all he said. You're troubled in your spirit. Look to Jesus and live. Spurgeon's testimony was that day his burden was lifted and salvation came to his soul. The truth is that every person who has been saved can tell the same story. Hey, I remember the day that I got saved. Why do we remember that day that we got saved so clearly? We remember being under conviction. Now, not everybody's story is like Charles Spurgeon. Not everybody's story is like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Not everybody's story is like somebody else's story. But there must be one thing in common that all of us realized our need for a Savior. We realized our sinful condition and we realized that we needed someone that could save our soul. So I want to give you three things about our text this morning. What did Jesus mean 
When he said, I'm going to give you the comforter, he's going to come to reprove the world of their sin and righteousness and of judgment. The first thing that I want to see about our text is this. It's found in verse number 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, the pressing nature of conviction. The pressing nature of conviction. Conviction is an awakening experience. It is the Holy Spirit's job both to convict and to convince. Matter of fact, uh, the word reprove is a Greek word that we get with the word of a drama in a courtroom. We've all seen courtroom trials. It is a word which refers to what the prosecuting attorney does when he argues his case. He puts the defendant on the witness stand and he begins to pile up the evidence against the defendant. He piles up the evidence upon fact, upon fact, upon fact. And finally, the enormity of the evidence is so overwhelming that the judge is forced to say, I find you guilty beyond any reasonable doubt. It means to convict of guilt. And more than that, it means to present the evidence in such an overwhelming fashion that even the defendant is is compelled to say at the very end, I'm guilty, I admit it, I confess my guilt. The Holy Spirit brings things to light in the sinner's life, both his actions and his thought life both his deeds and his secret life. He exposes every sin in his life, the things that he's done wrong, the things that he's failed to do right. He shows someone his or her faults. Conviction goes beyond accusing someone of doing wrong. The accusation must be proven. So the Holy Spirit pricks the heart of a person. He knows that they're guilty. The Holy Spirit convicts and, and He convinces. What does this mean? The Holy Spirit opens a man's heart. He lays it bare. He reveals that that man is sinful. And when He does that, the Spirit of God shows the sinner that he's condemned before God and God's condemnation exposes him to God's sentence upon his life and he's under God's judgment and judgment of doom and hell. This man realizes that he needs a Savior. Turn with me to Judge, or, uh, Jude, rather, Jude, verses 14 and 15. I want to show you what God sent Enoch in Genesis. Jude refers to that. Jude is a snapshot of the revelation. Right before the day of, of the revelation comes, Jude kind of gives us a picture. But he says in Jude 14 and 15, he says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment, listen to verse 15, upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So four times in one verse the word ungodly is mentioned. It's the only time in our, in our Bible that that's done. And he says this is it, to execute judgment and to convince all that are ungodly. Their deeds are ungodly. Their words are ungodly. They've spoken against them. So this is what the Spirit of God will do. It will convince us and we'll see that we are in need. And as the sinner sees the ungodly heart, his heart is exposed before holy God. He will sense his hopelessness. He will sense his inevitable judgment. He will sense his lostness. He will sense his vileness. And he will sense it, his corruptness to the core. 
This man that is under conviction realizes what he is. It's an awakening experience when a man realizes he's not as good as he thinks he is. But let me say this, conviction is an alarming experience. The Holy Spirit hammers and drives a person to the tragedy of his soul without Christ. Listen to how folks describe what it's like to be convicted by the Spirit of God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I want to I show you some verses in Acts. These are the same people that yelled just a few weeks before, crucify him. Crucify him. Many of these people in the audience of, of uh, Peter preaching in Jerusalem, many of these people had blood on their hands. They were yelling as Christ was being crucified. Crucify him. But Peter, through the Spirit of God, is preaching at Pentecost. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, and uh, I believe it's in verse number 37, as he has just preached the gospel. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The power of the gospel and the power of the word and the power of the spirit pricked the hearts of the men and they were so moved that they didn't know what to do. Listen, that shows me that grace has no bounds. The very men that, that, that crucified Christ, the very men that mocked Him and spit upon Him and called Him names and cursed Him is the same men that fell under conviction and didn't even know what to do. That is called the, the pricking of the heart or the, the, uh, the word is conviction that we're looking for. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Just a few chapters over. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles spoke to this Jewish Supreme Court. Look in verse number 33. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Cut to the heart, pricked to the heart. This, this court, this, these, uh, these religious Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and all these people that's standing there listening to Peter declare the gospel and declare his boldness for Christ. They're pricked to the heart, they're cut to the heart, and they want to destroy these apostles. Why? They were under conviction. Cut to the heart, pricked to the heart. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, here's a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen, the first deacon. Stephen, a man who's martyred for the faith by the lion's gate there. He's stoned. But notice his, after his message, verse 54, here Stephen says this, When they heard these things, the people around that was listening to Stephen's message, they were cut to the heart. What does that mean to be cut to the heart? It means to be convicted. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. They were so under deep conviction that they, that they were so angry at this man that they wanted to kill him. And by the way, they did. It wasn't the fact that Stephen was somebody in, in, in town. It wasn't the fact that they hated him. No, it was the words that he was saying. It was the God that he knew. Acts chapter 9, just a few chapters over. Look at verse number 5. Here's a man, but everybody with a man named Saul. Saul was saved on the Damascus road and 
this is a story about his conversion, but the Bible says in verse 5, and when he said uh, he's, he's going down the Damascus Road on a journey, and all of a sudden there was a light that shined around him from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why per- persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Why? He said this, uh, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Listen. Paul was dealt with on the Damascus Road right there. I mean, the light shone from heaven. The Lord convicted Paul and, and saw it. He, he saw his need and he goes, Lord, uh, he, he says, who art thou, Lord? And by the way, what a great question. One of the most important questions that anybody can ask is, who art thou, Lord? I read a poll recently where they asked Americans, uh, and this was a recent poll, uh, they said, well, if you had one question to ask God, what would it be? So all these people are asking questions like, uh, God, why can't you, uh, why are there still diseases in the world? And one question was like, what's the future like for my family? And, and then this one's, why is there this and that? And a lot of these questions could be answered in God's Word. Many people don't believe it and don't understand it. But they were just wanting to ask. And then my, my question, I think the greatest question that you'd ask is, who art thou, Lord? Who art thou? Who is Jesus to you? What a great question. You go ask people, who is Jesus? Boy, you'll get all kinds of answers, won't you? Who is Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? What a great question. I know that's a message for another time, but but Paul was so stirred up. He said, who art thou, Lord? Hey, just a few chapters before, he's actually responsible for stoning a saint of a man. And Stephen. So, it is today when the Spirit of God convicts a sinner of his lost condition. His heart feels stirred and stung and crushed with a heavy load of sin. And you yearn for the load to be lifted and the peace in the heart and the forgiveness of sin to be made right with God. Here's the third thing. It's conviction is an activating experience. It activates something. The Spirit desires to motivate you to do something. I, I've been preaching before about service for the Lord, and I've had people uh, respond in an invitation saying, you know what, Lord, uh, uh, preacher, I've got to do something. God's been working on me. I've got to do something. I've got to respond. I'll preach a message on maybe witnessing, and folks will go, and we'll see a big response to getting tracks out of the track. We'll, we'll respond as this or that, and people will respond. You say, what is that? Something stirred in your heart, and you felt the need to do something about it. It activates. And when you sense the Spirit of God working and stirring, and, and re- you need to repent of that sin and turn from that sin and turn to God, and you must not delay in making that decision. Don't leave unless you've been dealt with by God and you've done business with God. Can I ask you this? Do you remember what happened when you pushed Him aside? You keep pushing aside? Let me just say this. The pastor may annoy you. you. You may be sitting there this morning saying, man, I wish he'd just get off this subject. Well, you got just a few minutes more. Amen. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Great Mother's Day message. I was thinking about, man, how does conviction and mothers go together? And I thought, man, they go a lot together. <laughs> My mama was the Holy Spirit of the home. She was, man. I'm telling you what. She convicted me a lot and convinced me and everything else. But do you remember what happened when you pushed him aside? One day that preacher will no longer be there to preach. Some of you may get annoyed with a text message. Hey man, I missed you Sunday. Oh, I wish he'd leave me alone. One day he will. 
wish he'd just stop preaching. I remember I'd just gotten here. I hadn't been pastor here, but maybe six months. And there was a family, a husband and a wife that had been visiting the church. And I really liked this couple. And they came for a good while. And I, I remember uh, all of a sudden they just disappeared. And uh, we, uh, man, I, I was low trying to locate them. I finally found the family that invited them. And I said, hey, where's so-and-so at? And they said, oh, preacher. Uh, they, they really love the church, he said, but, but he said he got tired of your hellfire damnation preaching. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, it's a hellfire damnation preacher, and I don't like that. And I thought, I'm a hellfire damnation preacher? I said, I guess that's a, a compliment. I don't know. But, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, no, that's not what he had a problem with. He had a problem with conviction. Listen, y'all know good and well, I don't hang you over hell every week and, 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 and do all that to you. And, but let me just say this. Listen, there's not enough of that in America today. We'd be in much better shape if we got back to convicting messages where we just preach the Word and, hey, let the Spirit of God do the work. And by the way, listen, I preached this week down in Georgia to a bunch of teenagers and, and we had a bunch of hands raised that they were lost. But listen, I, what I'm saying today is this. I'm even seeing the young people not respond like they used to. I, well, listen, I used to preach to teenagers and I've preached for them t- t- for 20 years probably. And, and it was nothing to see young people just give their heart to God and weep and surrender to preach and surrender their life to do what God's... And listen, though we had a great service and those kids were awesome and great and they well behaved, many of them left and never dealt with their thing. The thing that God had done, never... 15 of them got saved and others made decisions, but folks, there were so many more. You say, Pastor, what can you accredit that to? The hardness of the heart. Where it used to say adults are hardened and the older you get, the more hard your uh, heart becomes and that's true. But I've seen that hard heart trickle down into our young people. Most of the crime that's being committed today in America are young people. You look at the news, 12-year-olds shooting people. Just go ahead. Murdering 11-year-olds, grabbing guns and shooting police officers and, and, and murdering. And all over the nation, there is, I mean, it's kids. You say, what's happened? The hardness of the heart. Morals don't matter anymore. Somewhere along the way, they crossed the line. The conviction, the desire to make the decision was soon gone. Let me just say this, that we all have a moral conscience. We all, I don't have to convince you this morning that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that fornication is wrong. But but listen, the sin that he's going to deal with most I'm going to tell you about. Notice this in verse number, go back to John 16. I want to show you this because there's the process of conviction. Look at verse number Nine, the process. He says, of sin because they believe not on me. The sin because they believe not on me. Notice he does not say sins. He does not say in verse 9, of sins. He says, S-I-N, of sin. You say, well, pastor, what sin would that be that the Holy Spirit is going to convict us of? Would it be murder? Would it be a lion? Would it be cheating? Would it be? No, the sin of unbelief. The worst sin that you could commit is the sin of unbelief. We ask God to forgive us. Lord, forgive me of my sin. How can we remember all the sins that we've committed? We can't. But we can ask, Lord, forgive me of my unbelief. 
Forgive me my unbelief. It's the nature of sin. He convicts the world of their guilt before God. Did you notice that sin is not plural? Most folks don't believe that refusing to believe in Jesus Christ is the greatest sin. Let me just say this. It's not the greatest. It's the chief of all sin. Why? He's God's only begotten Son. And you're rejecting a holy God, His only begotten, sinless, perfect Son. And you're saying, He's not good enough. I don't believe. That's the sin of unbelief. What sin does the Spirit convict a lost person of? The sin of unbelief. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to convict people of their sin of murder. They know it's wrong. Because just about everybody knows it's wrong to commit murder. Even murderers themselves know that they've done wrong. There's a conscience that comes over. And people, listen, conscience can sometimes convict a lost person of their sins. And yet, the very folks who will admit it's wrong to murder, rob, steal, are the same people that will say, there's nothing wrong with me not believing in Jesus. Let me say, that's the most horrible of them all. Here's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a lost person. He convicts and he convinces by saying to the lost person, you ought to believe in Jesus. You ought to receive him as your Lord and Savior. You ought to put your faith in him today. And do you know what that is? My friend, that is Holy Spirit conviction of you, of your sin, and believing Jesus Christ. He is convincing you to believe on the name that's above every name. Matter of fact, there's so many great sins to reject Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, I'll read that to you this morning. John 3 and verse number 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To say it another way, the greatest question between God and man is not primarily the sin question, but the son question. The son question. Listen, conviction is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It is a demonstration of the love, the mercy, and the grace of Almighty God. And if He didn't convict men of sin, none of us would be saved. It shows us that He loves us. There's a need of righteousness. I love this. Verse number 10. He says, I'm not going to just reprove of sin or convict of sin because they believe not on me, but of righteousness. Verse 10. Righteousness is the opposite of sin. You see, that is the other side. The Holy Spirit not only shows us how bad we are, but He shows us how pure and holy He is. That's how we realize. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah was writing, he said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And I said, Woe is me. When he saw Jesus, when he saw the Lord, he did not say, yay, wow, look at me. No, he said, woe is me. Why? Because he's a man of unclean lips. One of the greatest mistakes man makes is comparing himself with other men. The reason why men won't get right with the Lord and women won't get right with the Lord is they'll say, I don't need God. I'm as good as He is. Or I'm as good as she is. 
That is the worst thing you can do because he said this, of righteousness. Who should we have our eyes on? Not other men, not other women, but on him. And when we get our eyes on him, we realize what we need. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The Holy Spirit convinces the world of a new standard of righteousness, which is Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 10. And by the way, get ready to be blessed Notice the latter part of verse 10. It says, Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. That little phrase, I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Do you know what the greatest proof? I just saw this the other day. The greatest proof is that Jesus is totally righteous. The total righteousness of God is the fact that God the Father accepted him into his presence. After the cross. After he took on our sin, Jesus was on the cross. And what did the Father lay on him? Our sin. Guess what? He became our sin according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But watch this. And Jesus bore that sin away and came into the grave. And the Father said, come on up. And Jesus says, I can prove my righteousness because the Father has accepted me into his presence. And the God, listen, can God accept anything in His presence that isn't righteous? According to Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13, the answer is no. When Jesus entered into the presence of the Father, that was what God was saying, you are righteous. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians, I'll just read it to you. I I got a blessing out of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God In Him. The old hymn, I love the words of that. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. His righteousness is imputed to us as we enter into God's presence just as perfect as Jesus is. Our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Buried in the sea of forgetfulness. Never to be brought up. Never to be thrown back into our face. Why? They've been paid for in full. And we're as righteous as God, as Jesus Christ is. Here's the nearness of judgment. Look at verse 11 and I'm through. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Who's the prince of this world? Well, Satan is. When was he judged? He was judged at the cross. He was judged at the cross. Jesus is not talking about future judgment here. It's a, it's, a, it's a perfect passive. It means Satan has been judged in the past. He continues to be judged and will be judged in the future. He stands condemned and will one day be condemned in the lake of fire. Calvary and the resurrection were God's blow on Satan crushing him. Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. But Satan's judgment is the kind of judgment on every sinner. Every person who follows him and receives the same judgment as he will. Eternal separation from God. But here's the third and final thing, the purpose of conviction. What's the purpose of it? Here's the purpose, and listen to this. The purpose is the Holy Spirit wants to convince us to trust Jesus so God won't have to convict us of that final judgment. Well, what do you mean? Well, let me remind you that 
Again, the Spirit's conviction is a sign of God's mercy and God's grace toward us. But just being under conviction is not salvation. You can say, well, pastor, I've been under conviction. That doesn't tell me that you're saved. I've known a lot of people that have been under conviction. I've seen them in here before. I've seen them hold on to the back of the seat. I've seen them look around. I've seen them, their face white as a sheet. I've seen them look sick. Matter of fact, there was a man that got sick, and, and, and uh, uh, he said he did, and he left. Uh, this has been several years ago. He left, and, and uh, we went and visited him because and, and, he did. He looked sick and, and went to him, and he said, uh, he said uh, uh, to the person at the door, he said, well, he said, I was just feeling nauseated inside the service. They said, when did it start? He said, when I got to church. He said, matter of fact, it started when the preacher preached. I said, I didn't know my preaching made people sick. Apparently it did. Repentance is an action word. It means to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord. If you're lost, God wants you to feel uneasy. I hope if you're lost, you don't feel comfortable here. I, even if you're in sin and you've not really dealt with that sin and the Spirit of God, I hope you don't. I hope that you feel uneasy. Sometimes conviction makes people act all different strange ways. All different ways. That's a good sign that you're being dealt with. And listen, there is no sin worse than the rejection of Christ. Remember, God has given you a chance this morning. God has given you another chance this morning to hear the Word of God preach and if he's convicting your heart and he's talking to you right now and you're listening and you're, you're hearing that voice, that still small voice that's speaking to you, hey, you need to get saved, you need to get saved, and you keep putting it off, one day, I believe one day that voice will get a little bit more faint, a little bit more faint. Maybe there's something in your life that you've just not dealt with, you've not repented of. You need to get it right today. I read this little poem the other day and I thought it went great with the outline, and let me read it to you. It says, There is a time, I know not when, a place I know not where, which marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us not seen, which crosses every path, beyond which God Himself has sworn that He who goes is lost. One from heaven is sent to you who from God would depart. While it is called today, Repent and harden not your heart. Hey, don't step over the line. Don't step over the line. Church, listen, I believe we're running out of time. I believe Jesus Christ is coming back. Boy, while we, while we have time, I'm talking about now, while we can occupy, don't put off the Spirit of God. If He's telling you to do something, do it. Men, if He's calling you to preach, preach. If He's convicting you of something, do it. If he's talking to your family, hey, Dad, if he's speaking to you this morning, don't put it off. Hey, Mom, if he's speaking to you this morning, don't put it off. Hey, lost person this morning, if he's speaking with you, I don't care who you are. Hey, answer the call today. A boy left home to work in the city. He left a little country town, and he was going off to the big city, and he told his mama, his mama asked him, where are you going to attend church in the city? He said, Mom, I promise when I get to the big city, I'll find me a church that preaches the gospel and I'll 
I'll go there on Sundays. She said, you promise? He said, I promise. Well, he moved to the city the first Sunday he was there. He met a group of friends that befriended him. And they said, hey, man, this Sunday we're going to start riding horses on Sunday morning. This is a long time ago when you only wish on Sunday people were riding horses. Today, that's the least they can do. But they were riding horses on Sunday, and this boy didn't really have the guts to tell them, friends, I need to go to church. I promised my mom I'd go to church. And so he kind of went with them boys instead of going to church. And he said that morning when he got up, they saddled the horses, and they were going to ride for a good distance most of the day. He said he could hear the church bells in the city ringing. He said, them bells were ringing loud at first. And he said, man, it just keep, kept reminding me, I need to be where those bells are. I need to hear them bells. I don't need to be riding this horse. I promised my mom. But he never said anything, and he kept riding. And He said, as he rode the horse that day, he could hear those bells ringing, but it was a little bit more faint and a little bit more faint. And finally, he stopped the horse in the middle of the trail, and he said, boys... I got to go back. I promised my mama that I'd go to church when I moved here. And the bells are getting quieter and quieter. I must go. And he turned and went toward the church. Many of you in your life, the bells of the Spirit of God has gotten quieter and quieter. Oh, they used to ring loud in your heart. They used to be a noise there hey that's not right that's not right that's not right turn to Christ 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 when I was a boy my mom and dad took us to the beach we had a person in the church that had a beach house and there on North Carolina coast and we had the bright idea of, of, of we like to get out in the water today I don't know with many shark attacks and stuff y'all get out in the water you're crazy I ain't getting out in that. Sure, I'm people biting your feet off and stuff like that. Or not people. I hope people ain't biting feet off. Maybe in today's society, you never know. Get bit by somebody. I'd rather get bit by a shark than ain't. But I'll say this. We were out there on the shore, and my dad had the bright idea of going to a store and buying one of these inflatable rafts. It was like an eight-man raft with paddles. I thought, where are we going? <laughs> I thought we were going to swim to Cuba or something, you know, or, or paddle. But he, he said, let's just get out there and float around. And so I jumped on this raft, and 15 years old, 14 years old probably. And uh, Dad wouldn't get on it. I, I honestly believe he was sending me a message like, I'm trying to get rid of you. So I was the only one on the raft that was trying to make a statement, I think. And anyway, I got on this raft and just kind of, you know, it was a beautiful day. You could just hear the ocean. There's something about the ocean that calming and, them waves coming in and so uh, I was laying out there and it, I don't know how long I was actually out there but I was out there on the in the water and the uh, I hear a voice Steve come back and I look and I see my mama on shore and she's about that big and that current had taken me out I drifted off I'm laying there soaking in the sun and they had to send the, the, the uh, whatever they call it out there, the life, uh, lifeguards to come get me. At 15 years old, you're talking about embarrassing. Here's, here's what happened, though. 
When I first got in the boat, I was just this close to shore. But over time, I drifted. And that still small voice of my mother saying, Come back! You're too far! I needed help getting back in. How many of you have drifted and not even know it? You've drifted where you used to be nestled up to the things of God. The bells of heaven were ringing. The bells of the Spirit of God used to ring, but I don't need that Bible every day now. I don't have to go to church every Sunday. I mean, you know, it's a little fanatical. I don't have to do, I don't have to pray. I mean, I don't, I don't have to really live the way the Bible says. I mean, you know, every now and then I can, no, no, no. If it was right then, it's right now. If you were close at one time, what, what happened? Did God move? Did the Spirit of God change His? No, no, no. You've moved away. We need to get back. He's come to reprove sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you're in here today and you are lost without Christ, man, I beg of you this morning. Turn to Jesus. Come to Jesus.